Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Tuesday, December 12, 2023. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. On the front page of the Messenger today, we have uh, two main stories. There's a large story that the headline is Lowering Barriers. Northern Lights Association of Homeless Shelters. And then the second story is drive through Nativity Tells Story from Manger to Cross. And we'll start with the first story on the front page. And it shows a large photo of a gentleman, Jesse Germanson, Executive Director of Northern Lights Association of Homeless Shelters, um, standing next to a tote full of donations that the group sends to 4-3 North Iowa. Subtitle is Organization Makes It Easier to Use Shelters During Colder Months. This is from Robin McClelland of the Globe Gazette. As winter takes hold in North Iowa, new challenges face the unhoused population. Bitter temperatures and winter precipitation make staying warm a full-time task. Northern Lights Association of Homeless Shelters knows the risks those experiencing homelessness face. And from November to March, Jesse Germanson, executive director, relaxes the rules of the shelter. Quote, Our purpose is to provide a sober, safe place for people experiencing homelessness to get back on their feet. I always say we give a hand up, not a hand out. During the winter, we make a few adjustments to make sure everyone survives, whether they are looking for permanent housing or not, he said. NLAHS is a group of shelters that includes the Northern Lights Emergency Shelter for Men, the New Beginnings House of Hope for Women and Families, and Walters House Sober Living Facility, and Courage Hall, a veterans' home for men. Residents of Walters House and Courage Hall must first complete a 30-day program in the emergency shelter. The emergency shelter programs generally consist of a 30-day stay, during which time residents can work toward their goals, whether those include drug and alcohol treatment, job searches, assistance applications, or others. Typically, NLAHS allows for one 30-day stay within the calendar year, but between the months of November and March, anyone is welcome to get out of the cold and sleep safely. NLAHS provides a sober experience for its residents, but it is understood that winter weather brings other challenges. During this time, a four-night stay is available to those experiencing homelessness, even if they are under the influence. Quote, We do test people when they come in the door. It's okay if you are not clean when you get here, said Gerdmanson. We'll test again on day five, and if there hasn't been any new use, we'll approve a 30-day stay. The relaxed rules even apply to those who have stayed at the shelter in the last year. I think there's a perception that we're really rigid, and that may have been true in the past, but we're doing our absolute best to get services to the people who need them, he said. We've been working with our partners like MCBD, 43 North Iowa, and Prairie Ridge Drop-In Center, and we're hoping community members get on board too. We think if you see someone who may be experiencing homelessness, you should encourage them to connect with NLAHS, he said. Some people 
may have been asked to leave under a set of circumstances and feel they can't ever return to the shelter, but that's rarely true, he said. If we do remove and ban someone, it's for an egregious violation. To do that requires two staff and myself to make the decision, and we do it only in cases where the health and safety of residents is at risk. Twice a year, local agencies perform what's known as a point-in-time count. Volunteers go out on the streets to meet people where they are to determine what services will benefit them. It's also an official number used to determine what resources are directed to what area. PIT counts are held in January and July. Germanson said that during the count in January, there were 56 people sheltering among NLAHS homes. It's kind of a triage, he said. People come in and we have to determine what the immediate needs are. Do they need detox? Do they need medication? Do they need crisis action? Sometimes all they need is a place to catch their breath and make a plan for the future. Of course, this is hard to believe, but there are people out there who do not want permanent housing. That doesn't mean that they cannot get services here or at other agencies. It's illegal to trespass, but it's not illegal to be homeless. We provide food, blankets, and hygiene items for those who've made that choice. Residents may be in the shelter from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. each day. During daytime hours, they are asked to go out into the community to work toward their goals. Prairie Ridge Drop-In Center is another local agency keeping people warm. From 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., Monday through Friday, the doors are open to allow anyone to sit and converse, work on computers, access counseling, or other options. They work closely with the NLAHS. NLAHS is accepting monetary donations. Their website is northernlightsshelters.org. Prairie Ridge Drop-In Center is requesting donations of cold weather accessories like hats and gloves and scarves and gaiters. And they are located at 112 South, or excuse me, 2nd Street Northeast in Mason City. And the phone number, if you have any questions, is 641-423-5920. Our next story from the front page, drive through Nativity tells the story from the manger to the cross. And there's a photo of two actors playing Mary and Joseph from the first graced Baptist Church in Sheffield um, sitting together. And this is from Alexander Schmidt of the Globe Gazette. Several hundred of the faithful flocked to the town of Sheffield this weekend to witness the greatest story ever told as First Grace Baptist Church held their third annual drive through Living Nativity program. The event is free to the public. Braving the below-freezing temperatures and whipping winds on Saturday and Sunday night, around 60 members and friends of the church, including a few four-legged ones, presented scenes taken from the books of Matthew and Luke that described the miracle of Jesus' birth, the angel Gabriel's appearance to Mary and Joseph, the adoration of the Magi, and the birth in the manger. As patrons slowly made their way through the church parking lot, voiceover narrations were paired with the short scenes from the gospel including the prophet Isaiah's message from God, Jesus' works in life such as the parable of the Samaritan woman at the well 
and ending with a display of the cross and empty tomb. Quote, Jesus didn't just come so we could have a great time gathering with friends and family, exchanging gifts and singing jingle bells, said Matt Reeves, lead pastor at First Grace. Jesus was born in the shadow of the cross. He was born so that he could go to that cross and die for our sins and then be resurrected from the grave. He was born so that all of us could have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus if we would only repent and believe. Olivia Hellman, age 14, was one of several actors portraying the Virgin Mary. Her vignette is set during Gabriel's revelation. Quote, She's young and she's afraid when the angel comes, Hellman said, but the fear turns to love and she glorifies God when she learns that she was chosen to deliver the Messiah. Hellman said she's participated in the event all three years and is proud to see how it has grown exponentially. Quote, I look forward to sharing the gospel and spreading the gospel throughout the nation, and we're looking forward to the Messiah coming back, unquote. Reeves said that this year's event was bigger than ever, drawing an attendance of over 550. What started off as a manger, shepherds, a few paintings, and a cross, said Penny McCaslin, member and one of the many organizers of the event. It expanded last year to include a set with Mary and Gabriel, shepherds in the fields with angelic appearances, a beautiful stable with Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus, a cross and an empty tomb. We want this to become an annual tradition for the families of our community as they celebrate the birth of our Savior, said Pastor Matt Reeves. We are all guilty of filling our calendars so full during the holidays that we barely have a minute to slow down and remember who it is that we're actually celebrating. As families drive through this living nativity with cookies and hot cocoa in hand, we pray that they will be reminded of the gift that came to us at Christmas, the Lord Jesus Christ. And turning to page two, one arrested after brief standoff in Mason City. This is from Lisa Grote, or Groet, from the Globe Gazette. Mason City police engaged in a brief standoff after responding to a call of shots fired at a residence on 12th Street Northwest on Monday. According to a press release, a 911 call came in around 11 a.m. from a male stating that another male in the house had shot at him with a handgun, but he was uninjured. Officers from the MCPD, Cerro Gordo County Sheriff's Office, and Iowa State Patrol set up a perimeter around the house and diverted traffic for a while. A search warrant was requested for the property, and the North Iowa Special Operations Group was enlisted to assist at the scene for a man who had apparently barricaded himself inside the home. Police say the man in question, 50-year-old John Paul Comfer, that's C-O-M-P-H-E-R, and it shows a mugshot of him, um, he exited the home without incident and was taken into into custody. Comfer is in the Cerro Gordo County Jail, on charges of second offense domestic assault. An investigation into the incident is still ongoing. Next story, Zane Properties acquires Quick Shop. And it shows a photo of the Quick Shop um, from the outside. This is from Robin McClelland of the Globe Gazette. Quick Shop, a drive through liquor store in Clear Lake, is now under new ownership. Zane Properties, LLC, 
purchased the business at 904 North 8th Street in October. The Clear Lake City Council approved a liquor license the same month, and the business has undergone some renovation in the meantime. Zane Properties also owns the Northside and Monroe liquor locations in Mason City. Some controversy has surrounded Zane Properties in recent weeks as a Mason, at a Mason City Count at a Mason City City Council meeting last month. Police Chief Jeff Brinkley recommended, and the council agreed, to deny a new liquor license application for Northside Liquor, and the business is located at 1303 North Federal Avenue. In that meeting, Brinkley shared his concerns that the application was a new application under a name other than that on the existing license. I believe they're applying for the license now to avoid sanctions that the Alcoholic Beverages Division will hand down to them for the most recent violations, he said. Interim Clear Lake Police Chief Mike Colby said the city has a few concerns. Quote, the police department has hopes for new business owner slash license owner to conduct business within the confines of all local ordinances and state laws. We monitor this establishment as we do with all licensed establishments in our jurisdiction, Colby said. In Mason City, MCPD and the Alcoholic Services Division have investigated six major complaints in the last two years. Four are associated with the sale of alcohol and tobacco to minors, one was a seizure of CBD products, and the last is an investigation of bootlegging. CLPD said it will perform compliance checks regularly, including, quote, random checks by patrol and plainclothed officers, spot checks for compliance for checking IDs, and a zero tolerance for illegal sale of liquor and tobacco products, according to Colby. Our next story Chick-fil-A coming to Mason City in the spring. The Mason City Planning and Zoning Division will approve a site plan for a new Chick-fil-A restaurant in Mason City. The P1 plan will allow for a restaurant with 70 indoor seats and 20 patio seats, along with a secondary overhead structure, to protect the menu boards in the two-lane drive-thru. Tricia Sandall of Mason City's Development Services Department said she has enjoyed working with the company as plans have been underway. They've been great to work with, and I really feel this will be an asset to Mason City. The nearest Chick-fil-A is in Rochester, Minnesota, or down to Ames. So we'll probably see a draw from other nearby communities, she said. Newly elected City Council Member Tim Latham said, I think any time a business is willing to build a new building and invest in our community, that's good for us. Overall, Mason City is headed in the right direction. The company held a string of food truck events in Mason City as market research. With trucks selling out on every visit, it was determined a restaurant would be well supported. The restaurant will be located in what is now a vacant lot between the Fleet Farm gas station and the West Branch of the CEMT Credit Union. Construction is scheduled to begin in the spring of 2024. And sticking with local news, Sac County Sheriff gives update on missing Iowa trucker, and it shows a photograph of the uh, missing man, David Schultz. Dateline Sac City. The Sac County Sheriff's Office gave its first update in more than a week 
on Wall Lake, Iowa resident David Schultz, who was reported missing on November 21. Saturday morning, Sac County Sheriff Ken McClure said in a release that the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation assisted with the forensic search of David Schultz's phone and confirmed that he has not legally gone through a U.S. border crossing and is still missing. McClure said the last time Schultz was seen was on an Iowa Department of Transportation camera on Highway 20 west of MM-126 truck stop heading west. According to McClure, Schultz, a 53-year-old married truck driver and father of two, had his vehicle called in by a Sac County Secondary Road employee 3.04 p.m. on November 21, after it was discovered parked on the traveled portion of the road at the intersection of D-15 and N-14. That's also 190th Street and Union Avenue. It was reported that the semi had been sitting there since early morning. Responding deputies determined that it was David Schultz's. The semi was shut off, and inside, deputies found David Schultz's wallet and cell phone, McClure said. David Schultz's driver's license was in the wallet. Investigators would later learn that nothing was missing from the wallet. Following the discovery, McClure said county investigators searched the area on foot with a canine and requested assistance from the Iowa State Patrol Air Wing Unit. A state patrol pilot flew the surrounding area and did not detect a heat signature that we would be consistent with a person, McClure said. For the next two days, law enforcement, area firefighters, and volunteers expanded the ground search on foot and with the use of drones. Nothing of significant value was located. To further the search, McClure said, Sac County Sheriff's detectives and Lakeview Police traveled to the Eagle Grove area in Wright County, and with the help from the Wright County Sheriff's Office, they found the hog confinement that Schultz was supposed to load up from. Load crew members were interviewed, and load records were obtained, McClure said. Investigators learned that Schultz had picked up his load, but had been late to arrive, and his was the last truck loaded. He left after or at about 10.50 p.m., at some point in Schultz's journey, McClure said, cell phone data shows Schultz traveling to the intersection of Highway 20 and Highway 71. There was not any usable video from the DOT camera at Highway 4 and Highway 20, and there is no video of Schultz stopping at the truck stop at Highway 4, McClure said. Cell phone data shows Schultz's phone arrives at Highway 20, Highways 20 and 71, at about 12.18 a.m., data shows the phone traveling north to where the truck was found. Data suggests the truck may have been there since 12.40 a.m. on November 21st. Investigators obtained surveillance video per McClure from an area business near the Weichmann Hog Buying Station. The video shows that David Schultz never made it to Weichmann's. Law enforcement has searched for additional video footage from Eagle Grove to Fort Dodge, but has not located any. Since Schultz's disappearance, the United Cajun Navy, a Louisiana-based nonprofit, and volunteers scoured more than 100,000 acres in and around Sac County. In addition to Sac County, Lakeview, Iowa DCI, and Wright County law enforcement officials, the Iowa State Patrol, and Minneapolis Police have helped look for Schultz. 
Schultz's wife, Sarah, repeatedly called the disappearance suspicious and said, this is not something David would do. He would never leave. His family is his life. Sarah Schultz last saw her husband about 7.30 p.m. Monday, November 20. She said David had been working all day and asked her to grab him a change of clothes. He had to do another seaboard load from Eagle Grove to Sac City, she said. He just washed up and changed and gave me a kiss and ran out the door. He was always in a hurry. Sarah Schultz said David was eager to get his work done and come back home, since her daughter and grandson were visiting from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. However, the next morning, Schultz found the man for whom David hauls livestock on her doorstep. He said, have you spoken to David? Schultz recalled. I said, no. He said, no one can get a hold of him, and the pigs have not been dropped off yet. McClure says anyone with information is asked to contact the Sac County Sheriff's Office. Their number is 712-662-7127. And our next story, Iowa State to pay ex-VP Norman $124,000 in deal. Iowa State University will pay its former Vice President for Operations and Finance more than $100,000 after his departure from the university. According to a separation agreement signed December 5, Sean Norman will receive a total gross amount of $124,000 in a separation payment from the university to be paid between January 1 and 15, 2024. He agreed to cut ties with the university effective December 1. When asked about reason as to why Norman is no longer with the university, spokesperson Angie Hunt said the information in the separation agreement is all she can share. As the Iowa Capital Dispatch previously reported, Associate Vice President for Finance Services Heather Paris was appointed as the interim vice president, pending approval from the Iowa Board of Regents. She previously served in the interim position before Norman started the job January 2023. Norman previously worked in the role of Associate Vice President for Planning, Budget, and Analysis at the University of Nevada in Reno before being chosen for Iowa State University's position from a national search. And now we'll turn to opinions. Um, The political cartoon today, uh, it's full color. It shows a fireplace with one stocking. The stocking is blue and yellow, and on it it is written, Aid to Ukraine. And on to the right of the stocking, we see an elephant uh, wearing a Santa outfit. He's holding a bucket of coal and is about to place a briquette of coal into the Ukraine's stocking. And then to the left of the fireplace, we have a man with a button that says Putin on it and a thought bubble that says, is just what I wanted. And our opinion today comes from uh, a Bloomberg editor and columnist, and it is from Mark Gongloff. And he writes, No, Virginia, your Christmas tree is not a climate crime. One climate change solution everybody seems to agree on is that trees are good. Even former President Donald Trump, who has called climate change a Chinese hoax, has proposed planting a trillion trees. So it might seem that the holiday tradition of chopping down one of these precious planet savers 
and dragging it into your living room to festoon with lights and ornaments, only to toss it on the curb a few weeks later, would be bad for the climate. But you may be doing the planet a favor. For one thing, Christmas tree farming is generally a sustainable business. Trees grow for many years before harvesting and are replaced by one or more seedlings when they are cut down. Just 30 million of the 350 million or so trees on farms actually get chopped down every season, according to the Nature Conservancy, which is an environmental advocacy nonprofit. While they grow, the trees absorb carbon from the atmosphere, doing their part to eat the emissions that humans wantonly pump into the air by burning fossil fuels and raising cows. Of course, cutting trees down, digging up the soil to plant new ones, and hauling the harvest to your local Elks Club or Walmart parking lot for sale to the public does generate carbon emissions. But this pollution is nothing compared to what's involved in producing artificial trees. These are typically hard to recycle, and they are also typically shipped all the way from China to that Walmart. According to one estimate, a six-foot-tall artificial tree, which is on the short side for a McMansion, produces the equivalent of 88 pounds of carbon dioxide, compared with less than 8 pounds for a real tree of the same size. To maximize the environmental benefits of the real tree, you'll need to make sure it's both sourced and recycled responsibly. Cutting trees out of old-growth forests and then just leaving them on the ground to rot raises the carbon impact. You could save yourself all of this agonizing by buying a live tree that you can replant once you're done making it look ridiculous. Of course, then you've given yourself a chore. But remember, if you still insist on getting an artificial tree, you'll have to use it for 12 Christmases to make up the difference in emissions. The risk is that you'd get sick of looking at it long before then. The average household uses such a tree for about 10 years before chucking it. Some people don't have any other choice. Maybe they have allergies or odor sensitivities that make real trees, live or dead, unbearable. This brings us to the deep, dark secret of this column. It doesn't really matter what you do. You could just stare at the corner where a tree should be, or you could buy a hundred artificial trees and set them all on fire on New Year's Day. Whatever CO2 equivalent you produce is not even fit to be a rounding error compared with the carbon emissions of, oh, let's say Walmart, which emitted 14 million tons of CO2 last year. As I've noted before, the idea of a personal carbon footprint was invented by BP, the oil behemoth formerly known as British Petroleum. It's a clever marketing deploy or ploy that makes you, dear reader, feel guilty about your own emissions, which in turn makes you less likely to complain. BP had 340 million tons of CO2 emissions last year. The conundrum is that many individual consumer choices together can shift demand so much that it starts to make a real difference. And the richer you are, the bigger your carbon impact and the greater your influence. The important thing to know is that you can buy an artificial tree and eat cheeseburgers and drive a gas-burning car if you need to and still help fight global warming. Make whatever lifestyle changes you can afford, sure, but the impact of talking to your friends, loved ones, and enemies about climate, advocating for action, and voting for politicians who want to make a difference 
will last longer than any Christmas decoration. And turning to obituaries, our first one is Leslie Fellstool. I'm going to spell that for you because I have no idea how to pronounce it. It's F-J-E-L-S-T-U-L. So Leslie, 91, of Charles City, passed away peacefully the evening of December 7 at the Ace Haugen Senior Services in Decorah with loved ones by his side. A funeral service will take place Saturday, December 16, 12.30 p.m. at the Messiah Lutheran Church in Charles City. Luncheon will follow at the church. Visitation will take place from 11 to 12.30 before the service at the church. Thomas E. Rafferty, age 76, of Mason City, passed away Monday, December 4. Services, Monday, December 18th at the Wesley United uh, Methodist Church in Mason City at 11 a.m. And then there will be a private interment at the Elmwood St. Joseph Cemetery. Tiffany J. Ward, age 45, of Garner, passed away Friday, December 1, at her home. Memorial service, Saturday, December 16, 10.30 a.m. at the St. John's Lutheran Church, east of Garner. Inurnment will be uh, in the church cemetery. A memorial visitation will take place Friday, December 15, uh, at the Cataldo Funeral Chapel in Garner, and that will happen from 4 to 7 p.m. And just time for a little bit of sports. Uh, Emmitsburg overpowers Britt West Hancock in thorough fashion. Emmitsburg earned a convincing 61-40 win over Britt West Hancock December 11th in Iowa Boys High School basketball action. Emmitsburg opened with a 17-9 advantage over Britt West Hancock through the first quarter. The E-Hawks registered a 34-23 advantage at intermission over the Eagles. Emmitsburg charged to a 53-26 lead heading into the final quarter. The E-Hawks maintained the upper hand, despite being outscored 14-8 in the final quarter. Um, recently, Brett, on December 5th, Brett West Hancock squared off with Garner Hayfield. And that's all the time we have for the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for today, December 12th, 2023. Now we'll um, take a look at the Fort Dodge Messenger for today and a reminder that you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of our friends with print disabilities. Now let's take a look at the Messenger. On the front page... Water and sewer bills to go up in 2024. Fort Dodge residents will see their water and sewer rates increase, beginning with the bills that will be received in February 2024. The water rates will go up 8% on January 1. Sanitary sewer rates will go up 6% on January 1. Those rate increases were approved by the City Council in 2022 and are part of the proposed budget for 2024-25. That new fiscal year begins July 1. According to City Manager David Fierke, or Fierke, it's F-I-E-R-K-E, a fiscal analysis recommended additional rate increases for both the water and sanitary sewer systems on January 1, 2025. 
Those increases would be 8% for water, 7% for sanitary sewer. However, he told the city council on Monday that he would not recommend any action on those proposed increases until after he has had time to review routine audits for the current fiscal year and the next one. The city council started its work on the proposed 2023-2024 budget Monday by reviewing the spending plans for the water and sanitary sewer systems, the road use tax, and Fort Dodge fiber. Okay, water system, it's got a breakdown here. Current budget, uh, 12756220 Proposed budget, 12410360 What the budget pays for, the operation of wells, the John W. Prey Water Facility, water mains, and engineering work for water projects. Planned major pur purchases, valves at $70,000. we are not immune to inflation, Ferkey told the council while discussing the water budget. He said the city is experiencing an increase in the cost of chemicals needed to treat the water. For example, chlorine, which used to kill any bacteria in the water, cost about a dollar a gallon in 2021. Now it costs $3 a gallon. Overall, the cost of the needed chemicals has gone up about $600,000, he said. Now the sanitary sewer system. Current budget, $12,371,584. Proposed budget, $14,288,234. What the budget pays for. Sewer lines, lift stations, the wastewater treatment plant, and engineering work for sewer projects. Road use tax is the next section. Current budget, three thousand or excuse me, three million six fourteen six ninety-three. Proposed budget, three million seven thirty-one three forty-six. What it is. This is the city's share of gasoline taxes and red vehicle registration fees. The city gets $133 per capita. What it pays for. Road maintenance, snow removal, street sweeping, traffic signals, and forestry. And then planned major purchases, wheel loader, 248000 wood chipper, 55000 Next section, Fort Dodge Fiber. Current budget, 3373293 Proposed budget, 4129497 Fort Dodge Fiber, the city's broadband utility, received final approval from the council in July 2021, and they hooked up its first customers this year. As of December 6th, it had 424 customers. The goal is to have 2,700 customers by July 1st. Uh, let's see. Our next story, tax incentives for apartments okayed. A new tax incentive approved Monday is intended to help spark the creation of more multifamily housing in downtown Fort Dodge. When developing larger multi-story buildings like the ones found in our downtown, developers need to be able to maximize the incentives for the project to make economic sense, said Vicki Reek, the city's community and economic development director, and she said that in a report to the council. The new incentive, approved Monday, provides a 90% abatement of property taxes for 10 years for rehabilitating existing apartments or building new ones. 
the construction of townhomes along 2nd Avenue South would be eligible for the incentive. Any future work in the Warden Plaza, which is located on 1st Avenue South, that includes the apartments, would also be eligible. The incentive was approved unanimously without discussion on Monday. It is the latest in a string of tax abatement incentives dating to 2013 intended to spur residential development. In other business, the council approved a ta property tax abatement for Donald Hefley for a new home under construction at 2237 8th Avenue South. The abatement will gradually phase in the full property tax for the house over seven years. Next story, Blaze Ignites Fort Dodge Attic. No one injured in late Sunday night fire. A fire in the attic forced some Des Moines, or excuse me, Des Moines, Fort Dodge residents from their home Sunday night. The fire at 500 Avenue East was reported at 1049 p.m. No one was injured. Firefighters arrived to find a two-story house uh, with fire in the attic. Flames appeared to have burned through a small part of the roof. Firefighters tore down the ceilings in the second floor to get at the fire, according to Fire Chief Steve Hergenreeder. One hose line was used. Hergenreeder said the attic sustained fire damage, while the second floor sustained smoke and water damage. And then there's a photo um, shot from the ground showing Fort Dodge firefighters working uh, the house fire. Says they were on the scene until about 1 a.m. And more fire news. Fort Dodge firefighters douse shed fire, and it shows a photograph of one, two, three, four firefighters uh, shooting water onto a shed. And it says Fort Dodge firefighters extinguish a fire in a shed late Monday afternoon. The shed is behind some businesses on the south side of 5th Avenue South between 22nd and 25th Streets. Fire was reported at about 4.30 p.m. Fire Chief Steve Hergenreeder said someone had apparently been living in the shed for the last several months. He said witnesses reported seeing someone leave the shed not long before the fire was reported. No one was there when firefighters arrived. Not a lot for local news in the messenger today, so we'll turn to opinions. 4-H members demonstrate leadership and service. They are among the future leaders of our communities and our nation. A tremendous amount of young talent was gathered under one roof in Fort Dodge recently. The occasion was the Webster County 4-H Awards Celebration, which brought together the student club members and their adult leaders and other supporters. Throughout the evening, the event lived up to its name as a long list of awards was presented. They included a variety of club and project honors, special awards, scholarships, and volunteer recognition awards. 4-H members who will graduate from high school this spring were saluted as they wind down their years in the club. It was a memorable night for the 4-H members whose awards will be cherished for years. But it was also a remarkable night for those of us who weren't there and have no connection to 4-H. The evening was remarkable for the rest of us because it demonstrated that there is a large group of young people in our community who are dedicated to learning and serving. And the 4-H kids aren't the only ones like that. There are other young people doing the same thing in scouting, church groups, and sports. These are the kids who will grow up to be future leaders of our churches, schools, 
communities, and ultimately our nation. It's worth remembering that we have so many youths of such high caliber in our community when it is so easy to always focus on negative things. To the kids we say, good work and keep it up. And that was submitted um, our next editorial. One man's donation makes huge difference for humane society. Someday soon, the animals, sheltered by the Almost Home Humane Society of North Central Iowa, will be traveling to veterinarian appointments in comfort, safety, and even a little bit of style. This will be possible thanks to a remarkable gift by one man. Dave Ristow of Fort Dodge and his late wife Liz were passionate about animals for all of their married life. They shared their home with lots of dogs and cats over the years, including six dogs adopted from Almost Home. Recently, Dave Ristow made a $10,000 donation to Almost Home. By doing that, he provided all the matching funds needed for a $10,000 grant from the Fort Dodge Community Foundation, which was awarded for the purchase of a van. Now, $10,000 is a lot of money to give in a single donation. A huge foundation or a multinational corporation might give at that level. A Silicon Valley billionaire might do so as well. But the Ristow family is none of the above. Liz Ristow, who died in June of 2021 in a traffic crash, held various administrative roles for the Fort Dodge Community School District. Dave Ristow is retired after working as a facilities manager for the Holy Trinity Parish in St. Edmund Catholic School. Their gift to Almost Home is rooted in their love for animals and his enduring love for his wife. That's what makes it, makes it so special. With one big check, one man made an immense difference for an organization that has at times struggled financially. It's refreshing to know that average people can still make a big difference for the causes they believe in. It's even better to know that such people are our neighbors right here in Fort Dodge. Another editorial, or piece from the editorial page, rather. Farm News Ag Show is Friday and Saturday. As farmers wrap things up on the 2023 growing season, it's not too early for them to start thinking about next year's growing season. Farm News, which is a sister publication of The Messenger, is ready to help them do just that with the upcoming Ag Show. CJ BioAmerica presents the 21st Annual Farm News Ag Show, and it'll take place Friday and Saturday at the Webster County Fairgrounds south of Fort Dodge on Old Highway 169. The show will run from um, 11 to 7 Friday and 7.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Saturday. On Saturday at 7.30 a.m., there will be a free pancake breakfast, and that's sponsored by the Webster County Farm Bureau. There will be a big room full of vendors and displays. Friday morning, U.S. Senator Charles Grassley will answer questions in a live interview format beginning at 11.30 a.m. The lineup of other speakers includes David Cruz, president of Comstock and a farm news columnist, Mark Licht, associate professor and extension cropping systems specialist at Iowa State University, Miss Iowa 2023, Alicia Gothi, Matt Johnson, co-owner, dealer, and director of happiness at the Fort Dodge Ford Lincoln Toyota, Kelvin Leibold, 
Farm and Agribusiness Management Specialist for Iowa State University Extension, and Chard Hart, Professor of Economics at Iowa State University. But wait, there's more. A drawing will be held for a three-night stay for two in Branson, Missouri. Included is admission to three shows and one museum. The Ag Show promises to be informative and fun. Be sure to put it on your calendar. And from another one from the editorial page, you might have heard this one already. Lights at Kennedy makes season bright. Holiday extravaganza supports local service groups. As Christmas approaches, the campground at John F. Kennedy Memorial Park is once again being transformed into a holiday wonderland. The 20th annual Lights at Kennedy will help make the season more festive for area residents and visitors. Additionally, the event raises money to support local service groups. The light display, featuring multiple different exhibits, um, will be open December 15 and 7 through 17 and December 22 through 23. It's from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. each of those days. Free will donations will be accepted. Some of those donations will support the philanthropic efforts of the event sponsors. Those are the Fort Dodge Noon Sertoma Club, the Fort Dodge Young Professionals. Backpack Buddies is one of the best known of those efforts since 2010. It's filled the backpacks of elementary school-aged children from low-income homes with nutritious food to eat during the weekends. Rest of the donations will be reinvested back into the cost of the light show itself. The numerous Christmas-themed displays that are at the heart of Lights at Kennedy are sponsored by businesses and organizations. These enjoy, excuse me, this enjoyable outing has become a holiday tradition for many Fort Dodgers. It's a superb adventure uh, that can be enjoyed by the whole family. Along the way, there's a good chance that participants will encounter Santa and as many helpers. Each year there are changes and enhancements to keep the event fresh and exciting. This month is filled with seasonal events that make it a joyous time of year, and the messenger strongly urges readers to include the lights at Kennedy on their hectic holiday agendas. The outstanding displays there will help fill you with holiday cheer. And turning to the obituaries in today's messenger, Lita Mills, funeral service, 2 p.m. Friday at the Lamp and Powers Funeral Home. Visitation Thursday, okay, funeral service, I say 2 p.m. Visitation will be 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday at the Lamp and Powers Funeral Home. Renee Rushlow, private family services will be held at a later date, and Lentz Funeral Home is handling those. Richard Walters. Funeral services, Friday, December 15, Emanuel Lutheran Church in Rockwell City at 10.30. Visitation, Thursday, the 14th, at uh, 4 to 7 p.m. at the Palmer and Swank Funeral Home in Rockwell City. Lanita Hendricks, visitation, um, 10 to 10.45 a.m. with a funeral at 11 a.m., those will take place Saturday the 16th at the Calvary Baptist Church in Webster City. Dean Hannes, age 62, of Fort Dodge, died Saturday, December 9, in Webster City. 
Funeral services, Saturday, December 16, 4 p.m. at the historic Bruce Funeral Home. Um, visitation will be held one hour uh, prior to the service. And turning to local sports, Dodger Bowlers Sweep Des Moines East. And it shows a photograph of uh, Evan Haig of Fort Dodge in the bowling alley. He's throwing a throwing a ball. The Fort Dodge bowling team put together enough frames to secure a sweep over Des Moines East here Monday at the Family Bowling Center. Behind a 438 series by Noah Winninger, the Dodger boys downed the Scarlets uh, 2,549 to 2,488. Winninger, a senior, had games of 212 and 226 to lead the way for Fort Dodge. Evan Haig added a 347 series with Dylan Crawford 311 and Slade Babb 305, each eclipsing the 300 mark. Brian Keenan added a 284 and Josh Jass a 267. It's great for your confidence to get a win, said head coach Nick Vinson. It always feels good to win, and that's why you compete. But we're still seeing things that we need to get better at. Coach Julie Ulrich and I noticed that we need more practice time, and we really need to work on becoming more consistent. Once we get that consistency, we'll have the kind of scores we're really capable of. The Dodger boys' JV fell to East, uh, 2160 to 1715. Cody Van Valkenburg had a 309 and Blake Seaman a 254. Noah had a really good night, Vincent said. He did a nice job of repeating what he was doing and threw a ton of strikes. Amira Lumsden recorded a 331 series behind games of 185 and 146 to pace the Dodger girls to a 207 or 2073 to 1988 victory. Felicity Strain had a 290, Callie Graves 287, and Sol Berkey 267 right behind. Samantha Welter added a 235 and Bailey Wilson a 176. Felicity, for her first varsity meet, did a really good job, Benson said. To almost get a 300 series coming up from JV was good to see. The Fort Dodge girls, JV, clipped east. 1372 to 1325, as Alexis Scott Freeman had a 198 and Caitlin Folsom a 186. The next action for the Dodgers will be Tuesday, December 19, when they travel to Waterloo East. Next story from sports, Dodgers finally ready to wrestle at home. Coming off a big weekend, the Fort Dodge wrestling team makes their home debut here Tuesday night, that's tonight. The Dodgers will host Des Moines-Lincoln and Des Moines-Roosevelt beginning at 5.30 p.m. in an Iowa Alliance Conference Triangular. Fort Dodge, 2-0 overall, picked up dual wins over North, or Des Moines-North Hoover in Des Moines East last week before placing second at the Council Bluffs Classic with Coy Davidson and Drashawn Ross, each taking home individual titles. Davidson, a two-time state medalist, improved to 12-0 on his junior season when he topped number one Carter Freeman of Waukee Northwest in the 138-pound finals 2-1. Ross, a sophomore who is, defending, who is a defending state champion, moved to 12-0 at 215 
with the 3-1 sudden victory over Cy Cruz from Totino Grace in the championship match. Drew Ayala was a runner-up with Demarion Ross, Kane Buttrick, Jesse Egley, Cal Hartman, and Luke Fierke all finishing in the top 10. Trace Rial, Hunter Casper Bauer, Bo Marsh, Riley Brown, and Bo Cowell were all in the top 25. Des Moines Lincoln, 1 and 2 overall, topped Roosevelt earlier this year around losses to Waterloo East and Marshalltown. Roosevelt, 0 and 6, has dropped duels to Lincoln, Waterloo East, and Apes, while going winless versus Adel, ADM, Clear Lake, and Urbandale at the Ankeny Centennial Duels. Fort Dodge will also wrestle this Saturday at home when they host the Don Miller Invitational with the only other regular season home action scheduled for January 11. The Dodgers are set to host a regional tournament in February. And finally, here's a story about being safe this holiday season. It's called Have Yourself a Wary Little Christmas. How to Avoid Thefts, Fraud, and Other Seasonal Scams. Social media teems with videos of boxes being swiped off porches. The internet means fraudulent fraudsters don't have to show you their face to fool you. And the big business of Christmas, Hanukkah, and Kwanzaa means it's also a busy time of year for criminals. Here are some online shopping tips for getting through the season without being victimized. Safe shopping. Don't use public Wi-Fi. Use private networks to keep information you enter into the website from being lifted. Check companies and websites. Don't avoid lower-profile, less-established companies just because they're not retail giant institutions, but do your homework. Check with the Better Business Bureau for complaints. Um, search court records where the business is based for any lawsuits. Remember, a company's social media posts really are just advertisements for the business. Yelp, Google, and Amazon reviews can be manipulated. And check for product recalls. Next, don't fall for time pressure. Like buy before 10 p.m. Wednesday to get 50% off. If you know you want that item, know that it's a good bargain and are economically ready to press the order button, hit it. But haste makes, makes waste of your hard-earned cash. The deadline doesn't change whether or not you're ready to buy. If it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. Great bargains are out there as retailers either try to unload less popular stock or suck you in with lost leaders. Um, those are sales on which they lose money but hope to get you in the door for more profitable purchases. Read the fine print. Are you being signed up for more purchases to be billed on auto pay? Are they ask for, asking for personal identification information? No retailer needs your social security number or your driver's license. Pay with cards. Both credit cards and debit cards tend to have fraud protection and give you powers to dispute a charge. Um, gift cards. These are popular when you don't know what to buy someone, but you know that they like this store or that restaurant. They're also uh, good for quick presents for teachers, office staff, and uh, others. And foiling porch pirates. Whether you're shopping a brick and mortar or online, you have to remember the back end. How do you get what you just bought, but not just to your home, but inside your home? Some apartment buildings have door staff, concierges, or package rooms for package delivery, and some don't. 
um, get the tracking number before you click buy make sure you've got the right address then get that tracking number and check it if the package starts running late or doesn't arrive on time then reach out to the seller make specific delivery requests request a delivery date and time that hits when you will be home and always request the delivery person get a signature from the person who accepts the package and don't have packages delivered to your home if you can help it um, if your normal routine makes you a nomad during the day you can opt to have the delivery made somewhere where you can pick it up yourself you can also have the item shipped to a store Amazon offers lockers and hub lockers that are often included uh, in the delivery charge and that's all the time we have for today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger for today, December 12th. I've been your reader, Mary Francis. It's my pleasure to read for you, and thanks for listening to your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. Music